Back at uh, some point in the early part of the 20th century, the uh, liberal Baptist preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick once famously said that no one shows up at church wondering what happened to the Jebusites. Now, I think that Fosdick's intention in saying that was that preaching needs to be relevant, needs to deal with real issues that people face and not be uh, quite so focused simply on the historical data of scripture. Now, we're not going to be talking about the Jebusites this morning, but we are going to be talking about the Edomites. And it is my hope, as we consider Esau and the Edomites in Genesis chapter 36, and also the subsequent biblical history and prophecies concerning this nation, that we will see that there just might be more relevance in these kind of details than we would at first guess. Far from being an irrelevant bit of historical trivia, the question of what happened to the Edomites is a question that ultimately finds its answer in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's look to the text, Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, and Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land, away from his brother Jacob, for their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife Ada, Reu, the son of Esau's wife Basemath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath and Zerah, Shammah and Mizah. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Edom, or sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatim, Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalem, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. 
These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Ana and Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin and Manahath and Ebal, Zepho and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Ana. He is the Ana who found hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Ana, Dishan and Aholibama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan and Eshban and Ithran and Charan. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Zavan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aaron. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Denhaba. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bidad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Paul, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mazahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kinaz, Chief Timan, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their inhabitants in the land of their possession. Now, this chapter that we have just read divides the narrative concerning Jacob, which ran from roughly Genesis 27 up through Genesis 35. And then beginning in Genesis 37, we get into the narrative concerning Joseph and his brothers. Now, obviously, Jacob shows up in that later narrative some, but the focus is, uh, is more on the sons of Jacob, Joseph in particular. But here in Genesis 36, we have this chapter that might at first appear a little odd. We have an entire chapter dedicated to the descendants of Esau, a man who is explicitly rejected from the covenant blessings that were conferred upon Jacob. Now Moses took the time to write it. More importantly, the Holy Spirit inspired it. It is scripture. As we find the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Really? You might ask. Even Genesis 36? 
Well, really, even Genesis 36. Now let's consider this chapter, and let's consider it in the context in which it was given, right? It was given from Moses for the Israelites as they're in the wilderness approaching the promised land. And so we want to start there, and then we want to see what relevance there was not only for the ancient Israelites, but what relevance there also is for us. And so the way we're going to do this is first we're going to, to walk through the chapter here in, in just, a, just a few minutes and kind of catch the overall contours of what's here in the text of Genesis 36. And then we're going to see two things from this chapter. One is some warnings that, that flow to us from the history of the Edomites. And secondly, we're going to see the hope that comes from the Edomites as well. So we're going to walk through the text, we're going to see the warnings, and we'll also see the hope of the gospel. So first, let's, let's make some observations on the text. Now, we're not going to work through everything in detail here. I realize that some of you might be relieved to hear that. Some of you might be a little disappointed. But be that as it may, we'll, we'll make some observations. And so, for starters, let's look there at verse 1. Verse 1, we're reminded there that Esau is called Edom. And you see that statement cropping up several times in the chapter. You see it again in verse 8. You see something similar down in verse 19. And then finally you see the statement in verse 43. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Esau is called Edom. Now, similar to the name Israel, Edom can be used several ways. It can be used in reference to a singular person. Edom is Esau. It can also be used in reference to the nation that descended from Edom. Just as the, we know of the nation of Israel, so we can also speak of the nation of Edom. And then thirdly, we can speak of the land inhabited by these people. We can speak of the land of Israel. We can speak, likewise, of the land of Edom. And also, similar to the name Israel, just as the name Israel points back to something, points back to an incident, incident in which God changed Jacob's name because he had striven with God and man and had prevailed, so also the name Edom points back to something, doesn't it? It points back to that incident where he had said to Jacob, Genesis 25, 30, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. The reference to that red stuff is that stew that Jacob was cooking, and, and that's where we derive the name Edom from. That's why he was called Edom. And so the name Edom points back to this incident that showed that Esau was a godless man, that he despised this birthright. It's not a good thing, but Moses reiterates it again and again. Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. Again, this points back to what he did, to the rejection of his birthright for the red stew. Now, verses 2 and 3 give us the names of Esau's three wives by whom he had sons. There's Ada, the daughter of Elon. There is Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, the uh, daughter or granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. And then there is Basemath, the daughter of Ishmael, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, if you compare the names of these three women and the names of their fathers as they are given here, you take these and compare them with what we read earlier in the book of Genesis, namely Genesis 26, 34, and Genesis 28, 9, where Esau's wives 
were introduced to us, you'll notice that there are some differences. The names of those first two wives and the names of their father uh, are different from the names that were given of the wives of Esau and their fathers in Genesis 26, 34. Now, it's possible that these are simply the same women who had more than one name and uh, that their fathers had more than one name as well. You need to keep in mind the context that we're dealing with here, right? This is not completely outside the realm of possibility. Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Esau all had more than one name. It's also possible that Esau's first two wives that we read of back in Genesis 26 had no sons, and that these two women in verse 2, Ada and Aholibama, are completely different women. We are dealing with a polygamist here, after all. This is not outside the realm of possibility. Now, as to Ishmael's daughter, who is referenced there in verse 3, uh, we found reference to Ishmael's daughter back in Genesis 28.9. Uh, there in Genesis 28.9, she is called by the name Mahalath, which apparently means uh, sickly or infirm. And here in uh, Genesis 36, she is called Basemath, which means fragrant or aromatic. I think this is a case where we're dealing with one and the same woman who has simply two names. Now, in, in verses 4 and 5, we're given the names of the sons of Esau's wives. There is one from Ada, one from Basemath, and there are three from Oholibama. It is stated there that these sons were born to Esau when he lived in the land of Canaan. And I think that's a helpful point of reference as we kind of think through the chronology of Esau and considering what follows in verses 6 through 8 where we're told that Esau took his wives, his sons, and his daughters, and all of his household, livestock, cattle, and goods uh, that he had acquired in Canaan and departed from Jacob because the land could not sustain them both. This is kind of like in earlier generations, Abraham and Lot had parted ways because the land could not sustain them. So also here, Jacob and Esau have to part ways. And then we find in verse 8 that Esau goes to live in the hill country of Seir. Now, as we've been tracking the narrative of Genesis, we've already seen that Esau lived in Seir, at least on a part-time basis, right? This was where he was coming from as Jacob was coming into the land of Canaan. He was coming up from Seir to meet Jacob. He invited Jacob to go to Mount Seir to, uh, to visit him there. But given what we see here in Genesis 36, it appears that His move to the hill country of Seir was not quite complete or permanent until Jacob had come back to the land. It seems like when Jacob comes back to the land, Esau kind of comes to the realization, yeah, we need to make a permanent move and just settle over there. We'll let Jacob stay here in Canaan. And so Esau's sons that are listed here are said to have been born in Canaan and not Seir. So the move to Seir uh, may have taken place, uh, the permanent move anyway, seems to have taken place after Jacob came back to Canaan. Now, in verses 10 through 14, we see, again, these sons of Esau born by his three wives. And in the case of the sons of his wife, Ada, and the sons of his wife, uh, Basemath, we see Esau's uh, grandsons by those sons. We do need to take special note of verse 12, however. Verse 12, we find a woman named Temna, concubine of Eliphaz. It's important to note her name because down in verse 22, we find her again and we see the family from which she came. And we'll speak more on that in just a few moments. But what is important to see here now is the name of her son, Amalek, grandson of Esau. Though there is uh, some division of opinion on this point, I think it's reasonably safe to say that the majority opinion is that this is the Amalek who becomes the father of the notorious Amalekites. 
which show up in later Israelite history. And then verses 15 through 19 list out these same men uh, that we've already seen as, uh, as chiefs with the addition of, of one name. These men are denoted as chiefs of the Edomites. And then in verses 20 through 30, Moses takes a step back behind Esau and his descendants to look at the prior inhabitants of the territory that Esau came to inhabit. To inhabit That area was called Mount Seir. And what do you know? It was named for a man named Seir. Seir the Horite, who shows up there in verse 20. And Seir's sons and descendants are listed. And we should note from this list the, the intermarriage that takes place there between Esau and his clan and the descendants of Seir. Esau's wife, Aholibama, is the daughter of Ana and the daughter, uh, the granddaughter of Zibion. She's described that way in verse 2. And here we see Zibion as the son of Seir in verse 20. And so Esau, in marrying Aholibama, is marrying into uh, this clan of people who are inhabiting Mount Seir. And uh, uh, we also see among the sons of Seir, that there was a man named Lotan who had a sister named Temna. In verse 22, this seems to be the same Temna that was found up in verse 12, who is the concubine of Eliphaz and the mother of Amalek. The, the point here is that the people of Esau intermarry with the, the people of Seir, and then they eventually become the dominant people group of the land of Seir. Then in verses 31 through 39, we see the kings of the nation of Edom, and we're specifically told there that these kings were reigning before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. And if you uh, pay attention as you read through that list of kings, you'll notice that apparently this monarchy was not hereditary. In other words, it didn't pass from father to son, because you read about one man dying, and then another man from a different place, from a different father, steps into the role of king. And then finally, verses 40 through 43 gives us kind of a summary nutshell of these chiefs of Edom. Now, I realize that we may think through these names and this history and wonder what is, what is the relevance of all of this? Why have I spent several minutes of your time, several minutes of our collective time in a sermon on a Lord's Day morning talking about the genealogy of Esau? This might be of antiquarian interest to some, but really, who cares? Well, for one, I think the ancient Israelites should have cared because uh, this seems to have both the genealogy of their brothers and also possibly the genealogy of their enemies. If indeed the Amalek of verse 12 is the father of the Amalekites, then this genealogy of their enemy shows them the origin of Amalek and therefore the Amalekites. And of course the Amalekites uh, are infamous because of what they did to the nation of Israel as Israel was coming up out of Egypt at a place called Rephidim in Exodus 17. And uh, this, this incident really marked the national mind of Israel. And so we read this about the incident in Exodus 17:14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then just uh, two verses later, uh, Moses says, the Lord has sworn, 
The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And then near the end of his life, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, Moses spoke to Israel in this way. He said, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked you and all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. This was, this was a big deal. And King Saul, of course, was the one who was tasked with exterminating the Amalekites. He disobeyed the Lord and did not execute that fierce wrath as he should. But because of what they did, the Amalekites were subject to judgment. Israel was to remember what they had done, and there was to be war, and they were to be destroyed. And as such, we should take warning that the Amalekites serve as forerunners, as it were, of all enemies of God. Forerunners of those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will pay the penalty of eternal destruction apart from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, as we find in 2 Thessalonians Verses 1, 8 through 9, the Amalekites were marked enemies of God and marked enemies of his people. But it was not that way with the Edomites as a whole. Genesis 36 is also a genealogy of the brothers of Israel. And so Israel was commanded concerning the, the Edomites in Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who were born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. And so the Israelites are supposed to make a distinction between the Amalekites and the rest of the Edomites. The genealogy given here, including the the various chiefs, may have been one way in which the Israelites were helped and instructed in terms of making that distinction. Another purpose of this genealogy may have been to show the fulfillment of Isaac's prophecy concerning Esau, which is given back in Genesis 27, verses 39 through 40. Now, several weeks ago when we were back in Genesis 27, I tried to point out that uh, that translations vary in the way they take Isaac's words to Esau in Genesis 27, 39, as to whether there is a partial blessing there given to Esau or whether there is no blessing at all given to Esau. Our modern English translations, the ESV, New American Standard, NIV, and so on, usually translate Genesis 27:39 in such a way as to indicate that Esau's dwelling would be away from the fatness of the earth and away from the dew of heaven, almost with the meaning implied that there would be absolutely no blessing or at the very least very little earthly blessing that would come to Esau. But on the other hand, the older English translations like the King James Version and more ancient translations like the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate usually, I think, translate the Hebrew a little more literally. And so the King James translated it by saying, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew from the heaven above. And on that rendering, the understanding would be that Esau is not absolutely cut off from all fruitfulness and earthly blessings. But nevertheless, even, even if we consider that a blessing, the blessing of Esau certainly did not attain to the blessing that Jacob 
had received from his father. Now, given those two options of how to translate Genesis 27, 39, I would lean toward the second of the two. And I think that we see in verse 7 that Esau certainly was very prosperous in a material sense, right? It's, it's not just that Jacob has so much and Esau has got just a little bit and he can kind of hang out on the periphery. No, they've, together they have too much stuff and the land cannot sustain them. And so Esau's got to get far away down to that land. Esau was prosperous in a material sense. And we find in Deuteronomy 2.5 that the Lord states that he had given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession, and therefore the Israelites were not to disturb them in that possession as they were going up to the promised land. And so the point that I'm going for here is that the Lord's hand does indeed seem to have been upon the Edomites, granting them land and external earthly prosperity. And we would do well to ponder this apparent early triumph of the Edomites. Because if we think about this chronologically, where, where they're at as a nation versus the nation of Israel at that time, they have kings before any king was reigning in Israel. While Israel had been oppressed and in bondage in, Edom, uh, in Egypt, excuse me, the Edomites had had their own mountain kingdom in Mount Seir. The messengers from Moses to the king of Edom as they were gearing up to go into the promised land, Numbers 20, verses 14 and 15, spoke of their difficulties. And they said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt and stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. And so here we have one nation that's been enslaved and mistreated, and now they're trying to go into their own land. They're the ones who had the promise. And yet Edom, who did not have the promise, is dwelling securely in a mountain kingdom. And the nation of Israel is wanting to, wanting to pass through on the, on the king's highway and maybe wanting to, to buy some things for them, but the Edomites were not, were not having it. These Israelites had the possession of the covenant promises, and they were talking to a nation who did not have the covenant promises. But it was Edom, who had possession of territory and who had a king at this point, and not Israel. God had promised Jacob that kings would come forth from him, as we saw last week in chapter 35, but kings, kings came from Esau long before they came from Jacob. It's also worth pointing out, as we think about the earthly prosperity of the nation of Edom, that the scripture speaks of Edom as having a reputation for wisdom and good counsel, in, in the ancient world. You see some references to this in places like Jeremiah 49.7 and Obadiah chapter 1, verse 8. There were some outwardly prosperous and temporally good things going on in Edom. But as we know, that's not, that's not the entire story, is it? Matthew Henry wisely commented by saying, the triumphing of the wicked may be quick, but it is short, soon ripe and is soon rotten. But the products of the promise, though they are slow, are sure and lasting. We may suppose it was a great trial of faith of God's Israel to hear of the pomp and power of the kings of Edom while they were bond slaves in Egypt. But those that look for great things from God must be content to wait for them. God's time is the best time. And if we look to the later history of the Edomites, it becomes evident that their earthly triumph was early 
And it was, eventually, short-lived. Isaac's prophecy of Esau in Genesis 27:40 was that by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. And indeed, that is, is what we find. Despite Edom's early triumph, they were uh, subdued by Israel in the days of King David. And the Israelites put garrisons in the land and they became servants of David, as we find in First Chronicles 18, 12 and 13. But also in accordance of that prophecy of Isaac, when the Edomites became restless, they broke the yoke of Israel from around their neck. And this happened in the days of King Jeroham, the son of Jehoshaphat, in Second Kings 8, 20 and 22. Now, as a general rule, we know that the behavior of the people of Edom was wicked. There's not a lot of good that is spoken anywhere in Scripture of the Edomites. And so Amos uh, announced judgment against Edom, quote, because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. There were these periodic outbursts of violence against Israel and Judah that were perpetrated by the Edomites. One example of that is found in 2 Chronicles 28.12, where we're told that again the Edomites came and attacked Judah and carried away captives. When it says that this happened again, we get the idea that this was was a running problem. This was not a one-off. So there was violence. And then there was also that incident of the gloating and the egging on of the plundering in which the Edomites were engaged when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And we find references to this in places like Obadiah, verses 11 through 14, Psalm 137, and Lamentations 4, 21 and 22. They seemed to be, it's almost like they were on the sidelines, kind of cheering on the Babylonians. Yeah, knock it down, burn it up, blow it up, whatever. And there was also arrogance in Edom. After all, they have this mountain kingdom, and they seemed to think, that they were secure, and the scripture says that they were deceived in their hearts. That's the kind of language that you see in Jeremiah 49, 16, and Obadiah chapter 1, verse 3. And the judgment of God came upon Edom because of those sins. And so, in that sense, Edom and his descendants are an object lesson for us. They are a warning for us. They remind us that Temporal prosperity is only temporary. The prosperity of this world comes and goes. Obviously, all things come from God, including earthly prosperity. Paul said to those idolaters in Acts 14, 17, that God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. These things come from the hand of God, even when they are flowing to idolaters. External blessings are good so far as they go, but they should point us to God. And in considering the Edomites, it also becomes clear that outward prosperity is no necessary indicator of God's spiritual blessing. The Edomites had outward prosperity at various times, but they did not have the covenant promises and covenant blessings of God. And thus, the Edomites are an example to us, then, of the judgment that is to come. In them we see violence and pride, and we see that these things will not stand, and that God will come and destroy the wicked. Though we may, like them, think that we're secure in our mountain fortress, whatever it may be, the Edomites 
thought that their ramparts of stone on high elevations would keep them safe from any invaders. But they were deceiving. Their hearts and their words were empty. Our fortresses might look different. Maybe we're trusting in ballistic missiles or firearms, or maybe we're trusting in a bank account or a home or a 401k. Whatever our defense may be that we try to set up for ourselves, those defenses will crumble like a house of cards if we prove to be the enemies of God. And so there are certainly lots of warnings to be had concerning the history of the Edomites. To put it in New Testament terms, we could consider Paul's words in Romans chapter 2 when he said in verses 4 through 6, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. The kindness of God in whatever external blessing he has given to us, that kindness is given to us to lead us to repentance. And so, by all means, enjoy the gifts of God in this earth. But allow them to turn your heart to the giver. Because if you continue on in stubbornness and in unrepentance, you'll be destroyed. And so, turn to Jesus Christ, Son of God, who gave his life for sinners. Turn from sin, believe on Christ, and be saved. The consideration of the Edomites does much to warn us, for sure. But, consideration of the Edomites should also give us hope. If Paul can say that not all Israel is Israel, that is that not all of the biological descendants of Israel are accounted among the recipients of the spiritual grace of Israel, so also is this true with respect to Edom. If we can put it this way, we could say that not all Edom is Edom. And I would direct your attention to a couple of passages in that regard. First, Jeremiah 49. In Jeremiah 49, verses 7 through 22, we have a passage that contains a judgment against the nation of Edom. God was going to bring this judgment upon them, and yet in the midst of the announcement of that judgment, we see a manifest token of God's grace in Jeremiah 49, 11. The Lord says this to them there. He says, Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive. And let your widows trust in me. The Lord announces that judgment was going to come, and it, it did come. It came under the Babylonians and, uh, and subsequent groups who fought against them. But there in Jeremiah 49, 11, we have this gracious statement of the Lord concerning his care for the orphans and widows of Edom. He says, let your widows trust in me. What a great reminder that in the face of temporal judgment and in the wake of temporal judgment, the same Lord is still present and calling and welcoming all who will turn to him in trust and in faith. Not all of Edom is condemned simply because they are the offspring of Esau. Indeed, as we already heard from the law in Deuteronomy 23.8, the sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. The way was open, even for repentant Edomites to come to the Lord. And a second passage that I would direct your attention toward is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. 
Amos 9, 11, and 12. And there we are told, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, in order to understand what's going on there in Amos 9, we need to understand just what this fallen booth of David actually is and how it is raised up and rebuilt. So what is the fallen booth of David? Well, David, as we know, is the great king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a great sinner he was, to be sure, but he repented and found mercy, and being forgiven much, he loved much. And not only was he the Jewish king par excellence, he was the king with whom God had made a covenant to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Second Samuel seven sixteen. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. But the Old Testament history makes it clear to us that the successors of David upon the throne of Israel and after Solomon upon the throne simply of, of Judah were a mixed bag, right? There were good men and bad men and multiple shades of gray in between. If you read the histories of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, And at the end of those histories, we find that the kingdom itself collapsed. The descendants of David were still living, but they were not reigning. And though when Amos was prophesying, the booth of David was still standing and the the nation of Judah still had a Davidic king, nevertheless, he was prophesying about a time when that booth would have collapsed. And only after it had fallen would it be built again. As God showed himself faithful to uphold the promise that he had made to David. And that promise is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was that Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now what is that but the the rebuilding of the fallen booth of David? And... In Amos 9.12, we should notice there what happens when this fallen booth is rebuilt. What happens to this kingdom once it is restored? The kingdom said to be rebuilt that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. As the kingdom is rebuilt, the kingdom is expanded. When the Lord rebuilt that kingdom, it would include the remnant of Edom and the all the nations who were called by the Lord's name, all whom the Lord would call of whatever nation they belonged to. In other words, old enemies would be included in the kingdom and would be brought to bow the knee to the king. And how does this happen? Well, it occurs by the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament times as the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom through faith in Christ And this is not simply my educated guess as to what's going on in Amos chapter 9. James told us that in Acts chapter 15, as Mark read that passage for us uh, this morning. Acts 15 is, of course, the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas had gone up to Jerusalem to speak with the apostles about the question of the circumcision of, of the Gentiles who had believed in Christ for salvation. Paul and Barnabas reported how the Gentiles had been saved through faith. Peter gave the testimony of Cornelius, how he and his household had received the Holy Spirit, that there was no distinction among the reception of the Spirit between those who were circumcised and those who were not. Peter expressed his faith that the ground was level, that all were saved in the same way. 
Acts 15.11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And so Peter, Paul, and Barnabas all give a report of God saving the Gentiles. And then James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, speaks up. And he quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12 and applies that to the reality that they were there considering. The Gentiles, the nations being brought to faith in Christ. And James says, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God uh, first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then, in what follows, Acts 15, 16 through 18, James quotes roughly, but not precisely, from the Septuagint text of Amos 9 through 11, when he says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacles of David which have fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now when we set Amos 9 in the context of Acts 15, it seems clear how Amos' prophecy functions in James' thinking. As James is considering the reports that are given by Peter and Paul about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, he sees this as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos 9. He understands that Gentiles are coming to faith, and his mind goes to Amos 9 as if to say, of course, David's fallen tent is now being rebuilt. Now that the Messiah has come, the kingdom is being restored, albeit spiritually restored, since Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but nevertheless, it is being really restored. And now look what's happening. The nations, the Gentiles, are coming to the Lord. They're trusting in Jesus. They are taking the name of the Lord upon them. This was the reality that James saw, and he saw it prophesied in Amos chapter 9, and he saw it playing out in real time before him. What this means, then, is that Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, this prophecy about David's tent being rebuilt and about the remnant of the Edomites being included in it is great news. This is the gospel. This is the promise of the Messiah who would come and would bring restoration to what was broken. Namely, in this case, the Davidic kingdom, which the Lord would restore in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this would be good news not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. The Davidic kingdom would expand and would encompass them. The nations of the world would be called by the name of the Lord and would submit to the Lord's anointed king, the Davidic Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. This was, in fact, where all of the Old Testament was pointing, right? This was how God's promise to Abraham would be kept. Genesis 12, 3, that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. This was the fulfillment of Psalm 2, 8, where the father says to the son, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What a testimony to the grace of God that the remnant of a nation which sprang forth from a man who despised his birthright is now included in the kingdom of the Messiah. This is a great testimony to the, the freeness of the gospel. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Our Lord Jesus Christ similarly spoke in the gospel in Matthew 11, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The, the good news about the Edomites is that they, the remnant gets included in the kingdom of Christ because Christ came and died on the cross and rose again the third day for the salvation of sinners, even sinners who sprang from a godless line. The way is open. It's wide open. We need to take the warning from the Edomite and understand that now's the time to get rid of the pride, the arrogance, the self-sufficiency, and so forth. Now's the time to repent of those things. Now is the time to believe in Jesus Christ and to come to him, to turn from sin, to believe upon him, and to find rest for our souls and in so doing, to enter into this expanded kingdom of Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your great mercy, which is extended to all the nations of the world. We are thankful for your great and gracious plans. And Lord, we recognize that, that we too are sinners like the Edomites, that we too stand in absolute need of your grace. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant us true repentance, that we turn from our sins, grant us true faith, that we would trust in Christ, that we might obey him and love him and serve him with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.